This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I observe that the case of Marbury versus Madison has been cited, and I think it material to stop at the threshold the citing that case as authority and to have it denied to be law. Because the judges in the outset disclaimed all cognizance of the case, although they then went on to say what would have been their opinion had they had cognizance of it. This then was confessedly an extrajudicial opinion, and as such of no authority, because had it been judicially pronounced, it would have been against law, for to a commission, a deed, a bond delivery is essential to give validity. Until therefore the commission is delivered out of the hands of the executive and his agents, it is not his deed. He, i.e. the executive, may withhold or cancel it at pleasure as he might his private deed in the same situation. The Constitution intended that the three great branches of the government should be coordinate and independent of each other. As to acts, therefore, which are to be done by either, it has given no control to another branch. I have long wished for a proper occasion to have the gratuitous opinion in Marbury v. Madison brought before the public and denounced as not law. And I think the present a fortunate one because it occupies such a place in the public attention. I should be glad, therefore, if, in noticing that case, you could take occasion to express the determination of the executive that the doctrines of that case were given extrajudicially and against law, and that their reverse will be the rule of action with the executive. Thomas Jefferson. Though it took him four and a quarter years before we can finally find it, Jefferson in June 1807 would write a letter to an associate in which he would reveal his negative opinion of the Supreme Court's decision in the case of Marbury v. Madison. Why did it take him so long to react to it, you ask? For the answer to that question, we need to continue with our look at the early part of 1803 on this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. Welcome, dear listener. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to my husband, Alex, for providing the intro quote for this episode. As always, he is willing to step in and help support the podcast and my efforts through contributing his vocals, sharing information about the podcast through social media, as well as with those we encounter in real life, and most importantly, through his continued love and encouragement. For all that and more, I can't thank him enough. It's hard for those of us nowadays who know the immense legal precedent set by Marbury v. Madison to fathom, but at the time of the ruling, it turns out that there was little reaction to it. The defendant, Secretary of State James Madison, as noted by Madison biographer Noah Feldman, quote, could not object to the conclusion or the outcome. The decision was an expression of Madison's own insight that there must be a national authority with the power and responsibility to curb states' abuses of minority rights. Historian Gene Edward Smith, in his biography of John Marshall, describes the press reaction as follows, quote, the Republican press, which often took its cue from the president in such matters, not only refrained from criticizing the decision, but reported the court's holding extensively and advised readers of its importance. 
Several papers printed Marshall's opinion verbatim, all 11,000 words, preempting much of its coverage of the crisis on the lower Mississippi to do so. By contrast, the Federalist press devoted little attention to the decision. Praise for it was markedly restrained, and what little there was focused on Marshall's comments about Marbury's right to this commission, not the court's holding that Section 13 of the Judiciary Act of 1789 was unconstitutional. Smith did note that one moderate Federalist newspaper, the Washington Federalist, printed the entire ruling and said that it, quote, will remain as a monument of the wisdom, impartiality, and independence of the Supreme Court. Congress, meanwhile, was more concerned with the pending motion before the House calling on the impeachment of U.S. District Court Judge John Pickering, while the Senate was considering Senator James Ross's resolutions calling for the seizure of New Orleans by force. Starting in the Senate first, the Ross resolutions were never going to go anywhere in a Democratic-Republican-led Senate, but they were designed as yet another action to which the Federalists could point to say that they were looking out for the interests of the Western states and territories more than the Democratic-Republicans. As described by historian Dumas Malone, Ross, hailing from Pittsburgh, quote, had more right to be called a Westerner than any other Federalist in that body, i.e. the Senate. Democratic-Republicans saw this scheme for what it was, and Senator Robert Wright, Democratic-Republican from Maryland, asserted that these resolutions were pointedly to make Westerners feel that the federal government was, quote, insensible to their sufferings and inattentive to their interests. On the first full day of debate over Ross's resolutions, Senator John Breckinridge, Democratic-Republican from Kentucky, introduced substitute resolutions to counter Ross's. Breckinridge's resolutions, quote, authorized the president, whenever he should deem it expedient, to require the governors of the several states to organize and make ready for immediate service 80,000 militia. Unlike Ross's resolutions, the substitute resolutions gave Jefferson much more leeway while at the same time providing something to which Democratic Republicans could point to say that they were preparing for the worst-case scenario if negotiations to resolve the New Orleans situation should fail. After three days of debate, the Senate defeated the Ross resolutions by a party-line vote, then proceeded to adopt Breckinridge's resolutions. Meanwhile, over in the House, as discussed last episode, that body was discussing whether to move forward with formal impeachment charges against Judge Pickering. This was a test case at the federal level for Democratic-Republicans, and thus, they proceeded cautiously. Though the House did vote to impeach and inform the Senate of that fact within a month of Jefferson's message of February 3rd about Pickering's conduct, they were not able to conclude the formal charges before the end of the congressional session. Thus, the matter was put on hold until Congress reconvened. Congress adjourned on March 3, 1803, and began making their way out of town. At the same time, a key part of the president's staff was making preparations to leave his service. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As Meriwether Lewis was transitioning to his new role as the head of the Westward Expedition, Jefferson would be in need of a new private secretary. 
To fill the post, he had in mind a young man who had offered his services to Jefferson previously. Lewis Harvey was at the time a 25-year-old gentleman from Virginia who was studying law in Georgetown. He was described as, quote, being of only average height and inclined to corpulency. According to the letter Jefferson wrote to Harvey on February 28th, offering him the post, Harvey had originally approached Jefferson about the secretarial position as he was assuming office in 1801, but Jefferson had already decided on Lewis by that point. Now, this does not mean that Harvey was Jefferson's first choice as Lewis's replacement. The president apparently had Lewis approach William Brent, another young man who had approached Jefferson about the position a couple of years prior. However, Brent declined as he was working at the time to establish himself as a merchant. Harvey, meanwhile, had apparently been planning a trip to France, a trip that Jefferson himself had given him advice on in a letter the previous month. In his letter of February 25th, the president had told the young Virginian, quote, that a trip of a year or two to Europe would be of service to you, I am satisfied. By the end of February, however, he was in need of a right-hand man. As Jefferson described the office to Harvey, quote, the office itself is more in the nature of that of an aide-de-camp than a mere secretary. The writing is not considerable because I write my own letters and copy them in a press. The care of our company, execution of some commissions in the town occasionally, messages to Congress, occasional conferences, and explanations with particular members, with the offices, and inhabitants of the place where it cannot so well be done in writing, constitute the chief business. They do not, in the whole, encroach much on the hours of study before dinner, and admit of the afternoon and evening being entirely given to study at home or the society of the place. He told Harvey that he was aiming to have the position filled by April 1st and assured him that, quote, your aid would be acceptable to me in the highest degree, but not on the condition of obstructing or retarding more useful pursuits. Harvey ended up foregoing the trip to France and accepting Jefferson's offer on March 12th. Jefferson, meanwhile, was making plans to depart for Monticello, but before he left, he had one more key appointment to make. The incorporation of Washington, D.C. in 1802, as discussed in episode 3.10, had done away with the old Board of Commissioners for the District of Columbia, but with that had also gone the entire infrastructure that the Board had established including the position of surveyor of the public buildings, which James Hoban, the architect who had designed the president's house, had previously held. Though Congress had already fallen into what would become a pattern of demurring at allocating funds to improve the District of Columbia, they had apparently at the end of the last session passed an appropriations bill allotting $50,000, quote, to be applied to the public buildings under Jefferson's direction. In order to direct the effort, Jefferson knew that he would need a skilled architect. Thus, he wrote to Benjamin Latrobe on March 6th, inviting him to assume the revived post of surveyor of the public buildings. Latrobe would accept the position, but he had his work cut out for him, as there were still numerous major ongoing projects. First, the U.S. Capitol was still under construction. As you may recall, at this point, the U.S. Capitol still only consisted of the North Wing and what was dubbed the Dutch Oven a temporary structure which served as the chamber for the House of Representatives while the South Wing was being constructed. It wouldn't be until the following winter before the walls started going up on that wing. Despite the fact that it was still fairly new, there were leaks in the roof of the North Wing that Latrobe would be responsible for dealing with. Meanwhile, the President's House was still a work in progress. 
there were roof issues on that structure as well, and Latrobe in the next year would direct work to, quote, put up the staircase between the public dining room and the library, as well as plastering work and sinking a well to provide water for the house. Beyond those two, there were plenty of other public buildings that needed to be constructed. As just one example, Washington still didn't have a church for citizens to worship, so the Chamber of the House of Representatives was still serving that function. I don't know how much we'll get to talk about him, but I felt it important to note that, as the narrative of the Jefferson presidency is going on, Benjamin Latrobe will be directing the construction of the buildings of the still-new federal capital at the same time. Jefferson left Washington, D.C. on March 7th and arrived at Monticello on March 11th. His visit would be a brief one, as he was on the road again back for Washington on March 31st. Another administration official abroad, meanwhile, was in the midst of planning his own return home. Rufus King had originally been named U.S. Minister to Britain by President Washington, and he had served ably under now three administrations. However, with Jefferson's assumption of office in 1801, it was only a matter of time before he vacated his post. Not only had he been abroad longer than he had originally intended, but King was now representing a government with which he was not ideologically aligned and with which he had limited influence. Case in point, in early October 1801, King wrote Secretary of State Madison that certain commercial provisions of the Jay Treaty were about to expire and needed to be renegotiated. King saw this as a great opportunity. As he wrote to Madison, quote, It was my earnest hope when I came hither, that I should have had before this period an opportunity to assist in the revision of our treaty with this country, i.e. Britain. We have sufficiently seen and become acquainted with its operation during war, and the time is come when it is to be tried as a rule of mutual conduct in peace. He offered up the possibility of traveling to Washington for a fortnight to meet with Jefferson, Madison, and other government officials to confer are of either traveling to Paris to meet with U.S. Minister to France Robert Livingston or for Livingston to come to London to meet with him. Whatever Jefferson thought best, he was willing to do. Rufus King was willing to serve. The response from Washington? Crickets. Meanwhile, George W. Irving had been appointed as U.S. Counsel in London and, as noted by King biographer Robert Ernst, quote, between Irving and King, there lay a chasm of hostility. In April 1802, there had been a false rumor circulating around London that King had offered up his resignation, and the incident caused King to reevaluate whether he should remain. He wrote to Alexander Hamilton on April 8th that, quote, I'm not much inclined to remain here a mere figurant, and I'm therefore seriously thinking of my return. Without deciding anything on this point, I confidentially ask your opinion respecting it. Hamilton replied in a letter of June 3rd as follows, quote, While you were in the midst of a negotiation interesting to your country, it was your duty to keep your post. You have now accomplished the object and have the good fortune, not very common, of having the universal plaudit. This done, it seems to me most advisable that you return home. There is little probability that your continuance in your present station will be productive of much positive good nor are circumstances such as to give reason to apprehend that the substitute for you, whoever he may be, can do much harm. Thus, King sent his resignation to Secretary of State Madison on August 5th. As with all communication across the Atlantic at that time, it wasn't until December 16th 
that Madison wrote to King that Jefferson had accepted his resignation. Then it wasn't until February 10, 1803, that King actually received the letter. Meanwhile, when the U.S. consul in London, George Irving, learned of his colleague's resignation, he wrote back to the U.S. warning that he thought King's resignation was part of a Federalist plot to win back the presidency in 1804. As he wrote to Vice President Burr, quote, You doubtless have, before this, understood that the plan of the Federalist is to make Mr. King president. Meanwhile, Irving wrote to James Monroe that, quote, Mr. King is at once a man of talents and politically unprincipled, artful, plausible, and insinuating. In private life, perhaps he is respectable, the more politically dangerous. And I do sincerely think that he should be recalled and, if possible, disgraced in the public eye. Seriously, talk about don't let the door hit you, eh, Irving? While it does seem that some Federalists were beginning to talk about King as potentially being on the Federalist ticket as early as January 1803, King himself was more focused on trying to make arrangements for where he and his family would live upon their return to New York, as he had sold his previous home on Broadway in New York City to John Jacob Astor in April 1802. As King prepared to venture west, James Monroe was readying himself and getting his fares in order before he headed east. As discussed in episode 3.11, despite the fact that Monroe was in a precarious position financially and the special diplomatic mission would only make matters worse, he did not ignore Jefferson's call for assistance. Indeed, with the very nature of the special mission, as he would not need to establish a permanent residence, Monroe would only get a salary of $9,000 a year, as well as his traveling expenses paid, and a quarter year's salary to cover the cost of his return to the U.S. He had to sell his plateware and some china, as well as most of his furniture, to Secretary of State Madison in order to have some ready cash on hand. Meanwhile, he had to quickly make arrangements to ensure that his business affairs were handled while he was gone. To manage his land holdings in Albemarle, Monroe chose Colonel John Lewis, but according to Monroe biographer Harry Ammond, Lewis, quote, was inefficient and would end up causing Monroe trouble. Monroe arranged for Madison and another associate to use his first year's salary to pay his debts on time. With his personal affairs managed, Monroe had to quickly get up to speed before departing for Europe. To do so, he traveled to Washington, D.C., where he could consult the reports and papers of the State Department to get the latest intelligence available on France and Spain. He also spent much time meeting with President Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison to coordinate strategy and Jefferson gave Monroe access to his private letters from Pierre-Samuel Dupont de Nemours, which painted a much more optimistic picture of the possibility of Monroe succeeding in his mission to find a diplomatic solution than did the reports from U.S. Minister to France Robert Livingston. Before Monroe was able to take his leave of the United States, however, the administration had to secure funds for Monroe's mission. In order to ease his ability to negotiate with whomever he needed, as it was still uncertain, who actually had possession of Louisiana. Jefferson had requested in his special message of January 11th, nominating Monroe, that he also be granted the authority to negotiate with the Spanish government along with the French government, and the Senate had readily agreed to this. The House, however, was proving to not be quite so quick to provide their support to the mission. Funds needed to be secured for Monroe to offer in the negotiation to try to purchase New Orleans, the Floridas, and whatever else he could get. But it wasn't until March 2nd that Madison was finally able to write Monroe that Congress had authorized 50 million francs, 
are $9.375 million for the potential purchase. Monroe, meanwhile, had already left Washington, D.C. for New York City to make arrangements for him and his family to sail once he had his final orders from Madison. Madison's letter of the second contained two sets of commissions and instructions, one for Monroe and U.S. Minister to France, Livingston, and the other for Monroe and U.S. Minister to Spain, Charles Pinckney. Madison was leaving nothing to chance. He spelled out to Monroe that, quote, Your mission to Madrid will depend on the event of that to Paris and on the information there to be acquired. Should the entire session in view be obtained from the French Republic as the assignees of Spain, it will not be necessary to report to the Spanish government. Should the whole or any part of the session be found to depend not on the French, but on the Spanish government, you will proceed to join Mr. Pinckney in the requisite negotiations with the latter. Although the United States are deeply interested in the complete success of your mission, the Floridas are even either of them without the island of New Orleans on proportionate terms will be a valuable acquisition. He also warned Monroe that, quote, the president will expect that the most punctual and exact communication be made of the progress and prospects of the negotiations and of the apparent dispositions of the governments of France and Spain towards the United States. Should either of them, particularly the former, not only reject our propositions, but manifest a spirit from which a determined violation of our rights and its hostile consequences may be justly apprehended, it will become necessary to give ulterior instructions abroad, as well as to make arrangements at home, which will require the earliest possible notice. Monroe lost no time when he received Madison's letter. On March 8th, he, his wife Elizabeth, their two daughters, and his unpaid secretary, Colonel James Mercer, departed from New York aboard the Richmond, bound for France. This seems like as good of a time as any to turn our attention across the Atlantic to get caught back up on what was happening in Europe. The Peace of Amiens, which we discussed in episode 3.9, was proving to be not quite so peaceful. British Prime Minister Henry Addington, as soon as he received word of the Treaty of Amiens, turned his attention on drafting a peacetime budget for Great Britain. As previously stated, one of the motivations for seeking peace for the British was the fact that the government finances were strained after years of unending war. Addington turned to some controversial measures for meeting the fiscal demands with his proposals including raising a huge loan, something that former Prime Minister William Pitt had argued should only be done when the nation was at war, and suspending the payment of British banknotes for their equivalent value in gold. Despite the financial strain the government was under, Addington at the same time pushed through a measure to abolish the income tax that had been put in place under Pitt. The tax was highly unpopular, and Addington realized that, along with easing some of the strain on the national economy, repealing the tax would also help him politically. Addington was able to get his first budget through, with even William Pitt, still serving in Parliament as an MP, supporting the measure. Despite this early support, Pitt would become a critic of Addington's policies of financial reform as time went on. Addington hoped in the summer of 1802 to firm up his support in Parliament and thus called for an election in the summer. Unfortunately, it didn't work because, as noted by Addington biographer Charles John Federick, quote, he, Addington, personally abhorred spending public money to buy parliamentary seats. I know this may come as a shock to you, but politics back in the day were quite corrupt, and it was not unheard of 
for British prime ministers to use government funds in order to influence elections. Addington, however, was cut from a different cloth. Again, from Federac, quote, He was not a political animal by nature. He found many aspects of the political system distasteful and did his best to avoid or ignore them. This attitude, though it attested to the strength of his character, was a serious liability for our prime minister. Also on Addington's plate was addressing the increasing social unrest that had developed due to the economic distress. According to Federac, quote, Addington developed a reputation as a staunch reactionary, but he was no innovator of repressive measures, and he resorted to them less than had some of his predecessors. In November 1802, the government thwarted a planned revolutionary insurrection known as the Despard Conspiracy. Colonel Edward Marcus Despard, an Irish former soldier, made plans with a group of associates, quote, to attack the Tower of London's gang munitions, then to capture the Bank of England, and finally to kill the king as he rode in from Windsor. The conspirators never even made it to the Tower, with patrols taking Despard and 40 others in custody at a tavern in Lambeth on November 16th, a week before their planned attack. With the nation at peace externally, if not domestically, Addington was also able to work with the Admiral of the Navy, the Earl of St. Vincent, to initiate naval reforms, including a reduction of the naval establishment and investigating charges of misconduct at dockyards. At St. Vincent's urging and the approval of Addington's ministry, a commission of inquiry was established by Parliament to investigate fraud and abuse in the Royal Navy. Despite the good aims of St. Vincent, Federac notes that, quote, St. Vincent's approach was slightly out of step with that taken by Addington in other areas of his administration. When Addington implemented retrenchment and reform, he was careful to provide for the contingency of an immediate renewal of war. St. Vincent, on the contrary, managed the Navy largely on the assumption that peace would last. Given 10 years of peace, he might have overhauled the system completely and had it better prepared for the next war. The diplomatic situation, however, did not justify the assumption that peace would last that long. The ink wasn't even dry on the treaty before French First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte began accusing the British government of being behind attacks against him in the British press. He claimed that Addington's ministry was supporting French emigres who were looking to bring down the French consulate government. Despite the efforts of Addington and his government to appease Napoleon, less than two months after the treaty was signed, the French First Consul initiated new tariffs against the British and, quote, reintroduced a law that required the seizure of all British ships of over 100 tons entering French ports. It was almost as if Napoleon was spoiling for war. As it turns out, he was. First, though, he worked to further strengthen his own power by putting forward a revised constitution. The Constitution of the Year 10 would make Napoleon first consul for life, and in a heavily influenced national referendum in August 1802, nearly 3.6 million votes approved the new constitution, with only just under 8,400 ballots cast against it. In September, a rebellion against the French puppet regime of the Helvetic Republic, what we now know of as Switzerland, prompted Napoleon to send 30,000 French troops into that country. The British immediately protested, asserting that Bonaparte would use the opportunity to claim the territory as his own. While Addington and his ministry struggled to respond to the Swiss crisis, the French First Consul annexed the Duchy of Parma and the Subalpine Republic, 
northwestern Italy in the early 21st century, into the French Republic. In response to the aggressive French moves, the British government decided not to abide by the terms of the Treaty of Amiens and did not evacuate their troops from Malta. As noted in a cabinet memorandum from the time, quote, as the system of entrenchment pursued by France has not only added greatly and unexpectedly to the power of France, but may lead to further encroachments in other quarters, His Majesty, i.e. British King George III, thinks he is warranted in not giving up those securities which he still possesses, and particularly that it is his determination, in conformity to the wishes of the inhabitants, to appropriate the island of Malta as part of his dominions. Retaining Malta would give the British a base in the middle of the Mediterranean, so you can only imagine what the French thought of this. Napoleon's government, however, would not have as much international support as it had previously on the Malta issue. As discussed in episode 3.5, the death of Russian Tsar Paul in 1801 and the accession to the throne of his son, Alexander Pavlovich, had caused a change in government and in Russian foreign policy. The new Russian government was not only okay with the British retaining control of Malta, but in fact, preferred it. Thus, French First Consul Napoleon was in a bellicose mood at the beginning of 1803. He called in the British ambassador to France, Charles Whitworth, on February 20th and told him, quote, that he would never permit Great Britain to retain Malta and that the question of peace or war depended on Malta. Bonaparte boasted that he had 480,000 troops ready and that he would invade England if need be. On the same day that Monroe and his party were setting sail from New York City, March 8, 1803, King George III issued a proclamation in the British Parliament to, quote, augment the British armed forces. It seemed that war was about to start up again in Europe. Meanwhile, U.S. Minister to France Robert Livingston had been steadily working away in Paris, gathering intelligence and trying to figure out what might be done with the French government to deal with the Louisiana situation. As stated, Livingston was rather pessimistic about the chances of finding a diplomatic solution, mainly due to the continued cat-and-mouse game that he was playing with French Foreign Minister Talleyrand. When he could get a response from Talleyrand to his inquiries, and that in and of itself was rare, Talleyrand would play coy and not reveal much in the way of useful information. It took Livingston until July 3, 1802, before he could even get Talleyrand to hint, not confirm, mind you, but just hint that West Florida was not part of the deal with Spain under which France was getting Louisiana back. Despite the lack of information coming through the formal channels of the French government, Livingston was receiving intelligence that French military operations in Saint-Domingue were not going so well, and he realized that could play to the U.S.'s advantage as the French government would be in need of funds to continue operations there along with in Europe if the quarrels on the continent escalated back to open warfare once more. Livingston spent a good deal of time in the summer of 1802 drafting a lengthy report about how possessing Louisiana would not be in the best interest of France. He detailed in this report the various commercial disadvantages Louisiana would have for the French, as well as how damaging it would be for foreign relations, in particular for the Franco-American relationship. Once he finished the memorial on August 10th, Livingston had it translated into French and had 20 copies sent to various individuals, including Foreign Minister Talleyrand. Talleyrand promised to read it, but one can only imagine him chuckling as soon as his back was turned and uncrossing his fingers before moving on to something else. 
Livingston vented his frustrations at proving so unable to make any headway in a letter to Madison on September 1st, in which he wrote that, quote, There never was a government in which less could be done by negotiation than here. There is no people, no legislature, no counselors. One man, i.e. Napoleon, is everything. He seldom asks advice and never hears it unasked. The months dragged on, and Livingston continued to make no progress. On February 18, 1803, he wrote to Madison about a recent conversation with Talleyrand in which he had communicated once more how the United States would not tolerate having their rights of navigation on the Mississippi River to be disrupted. But Talleyrand left the conversation, stating to Livingston in no uncertain terms that, quote, I must consider the purchase of the country, i.e. Louisiana, as out of the question, intimating that a sale was below their dignity, so that I fear my hopes founded on their necessities are frustrated. Livingston had, however, managed to get his proposals through the Talleyrand firewall and before First Consul Napoleon himself through the use of an intermediary, Napoleon's brother, Joseph Bonaparte. In his communications with both Bonaparte and Talleyrand, Livingston expressed a willingness to negotiate any combination of arrangements. The French could cede New Orleans and West Florida as far as the Perdido River to the U.S. and establish a new port across the river from New Orleans. The French could cede all of the Louisiana Territory north of the Arkansas River as well as New Orleans and West Florida, but retain that part of Louisiana west of the Mississippi and south of the Arkansas as well as East Florida. Livingston in late 1802, early 1803, put forward an idea for the first consul to, quote, transfer the territory of Louisiana to his own family members in joint ownership and the jurisdiction of the territory to the United States. However a deal might be arranged, Livingston was open to pretty much every possibility. Still, though, nothing. Then, after months of frustration, he received a letter from Secretary of State Madison. Madison wrote to Livingston on January 18, 1803, informing him of the appointment of Monroe as a special envoy to join him in Paris. Madison assured the U.S. minister that, quote, the president has been careful on this occasion to guard effectually against any possible misconstruction in relation to yourself by expressing in his message to the Senate his undiminished confidence in the ordinary representation of the United States. But as Livingston biographer George Dangerfield wrote, quote, It was all very well for the Secretary of State to write, in his kindliest manner, that the mission implied no reflection whatsoever upon his, i.e., Livingston's abilities. A reflection upon his abilities was what Livingston saw in it. He had been the one in Paris pushing, seeking any entree he could find into Napoleon's close circle. It was him who had sat through seemingly endless parties and conversations, him who had worked for months on a memorial that the French foreign minister mostly ignored. Now Monroe was just supposed to waltz in and fix everything with the wave of a magic wand? Those of you more familiar with the history of the Louisiana Purchase know what is next. But for the rest of us, we'll just have to wait to find out what happens next time in an episode I'd like to call, Can I Make a Purchase? Special thanks again to Alex for providing the intro quote for this episode. I also wanted to give a shout out to Philip Reese of the History's What If podcast. Philip reached out to me a few weeks back to assist with an episode that he was working on involving an alternate timeline where Reconstruction was actually successful. And... As I've greatly enjoyed his work diving into the possibilities of what history might have been, I jumped at the opportunity. Be sure to check out our collaborative episode, 
as well as Philip and Pug's many explorations of alternate histories by going to historieswhatif, all one word, dot com. Histories What If can also be found on all major podcast apps, or just check out my website or social media for the link. Special thanks also to the Itinerant Band for allowing us the use of clips from Jefferson and Liberty for the intro and outro music. For links to information on History's What If or the Itinerant Band, or to find the various sources used in this episode, go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Also on the website are past episodes and information about how you, yes you dear listener, can help to support this podcast. Whether you've provided books on my wish list for research for future episodes, left a rating and review, or shared information about the podcast on social media, or with friends and family out in the real world, each of those contributions not only has helped to build this podcast up, but it is also very much appreciated. A quick note for those who are interested, I will be making another live appearance. If you're in, or going to be in, the Philly area on Saturday, May 2nd, I will be presenting at History Camp Philadelphia. I'll share more information through here as well as on social media as it gets closer, but mark your calendars, and if you'd like to register, just go to historycamp.org. There are already many great sessions listed that I'm looking forward to attending in addition to sharing information about the intersection of faith and the presidencies with the audience at my session. To make sure you get the most up-to-date information on this and future appearances, as well as about the podcast, if you're not connected with me on there already, I can be found on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. If you'd like to send me an email with any questions or comments you may have, I can be reached at Presidencies Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Finally, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to listen. Until next time, take care, dear friends. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.